You're listening to the EM Ottawa podcast. And we're back with the EM Ottawa podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Rajiv Thavanathan. You know, I've been podcasting for 15 years, and I still make a lot of really stupid mistakes. For example, right before coming downstairs to do this, I was overcome with a terrible sense of hunger, and I went to my cupboard, and I grabbed the obvious pre-podcasting snack of a huge spoonful of peanut butter. And as soon as I put it in my mouth, I realized what I had done. And now there's this like weird globby, you know, thick feeling in the back of my throat, and it's gross, and I feel like it's affecting my voice. And frankly, you know what? I owe you guys better. And you know what? When I go back upstairs, I'm going to put a little post-it on my peanut butter that says, no podcasting. No podcasting for me. Not with peanut butter in my mouth. (sighs) Okay. Speaking of (laughs) peanuts and a weird feeling in the back of my throat, today's episode is going to be about anaphylaxis. But before we get to that, I do want to let you know about an event that's happening in February. It's the Ottawa POCUS Symposium. This is going to be on February 11th. That's 2022. Going to be a full day of lots of fun ultrasound learning with some of the best instructors uh, this side of Vancouver. We're going to be covering lots of topics, everything from basic to advanced cardiac, renal, biliary, DVTs, regional anesthesia and MSK, including arthrocentesis. And we're even going to have some a setup for practicing some critical care scenarios using our sim center and simulation cases. It's going to be a lot of fun. Go check out the at Ottawa POCUS Twitter site and uh, to get some information about how to sign up for that. There's a little advantage to doing it early. So if you do it before Christmas, you're going to save some bucks. So it's uh, a good idea. Go check that out right now at Ottawa POCUS. So we've got a very special episode for you today. We've got not one, we've got two guest experts to help us with this topic. We're going to be talking anaphylaxis, including some of the revised diagnostic criteria, the use of steroids and antihistamines, and duration of monitoring for the diagnosis, and maybe some surprises about things we do in the eMERGE that actually have downstream effects on patients and the specialists that see them in follow-up that, you know what, sometimes, and I'm guilty of this, sometimes we don't think uh, too, too far ahead about. And guess what? Once again, there was just so, so much good content that we ran over time. And I'm going to split it up into two episodes again. So that's two guest experts, two episodes. It's like a, it's like you're getting four episodes for one. So you can thank me later. So our guest experts are one, Dr. Graham Wilson, who is a fourth year resident in emergency medicine at the University of Ottawa. He gave a stellar grand rounds earlier this year on how to refine our management of anaphylaxis. And we're also joined by Dr. Derek Lanou, who's a third-year internal medicine resident at the University of Ottawa, who will soon be a fellow in allergy and immunology. And he just taught us so much that I did not know about this disease. So Graham and Derek, thanks for being on the show with us today. Thanks for having us, Rajiv. Yeah, I really appreciate you having us on here. So let's talk about the diagnostic criteria for anaphylaxis. I have a vivid memory of being a brand new intern and my staff asking me what the you know criteria for anaphylaxis were. And I gave this long-winded meandering answer that talked about the likelihood of the allergen trigger and the specific number of systems. I'm, to be honest, I'm pretty sure I messed it up. I remember her telling me, really, it's just like any two of three systems, including resp, skin, and hypotension. And that's pretty close to the, the old definition, but they recently changed it. Now, Graham, you talked about this in your grand rounds. 
Tell us about how the diagnostic criteria has changed and why they did it. So I think first and foremost, the difficulty you had coming up with the definition for anaphylaxis is I think very reasonable. It's, it's very difficult to summarize and come up with a succinct answer as to what is anaphylaxis and there are many definitions out there. And so in 2005, uh, the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases and Food Allergy and Anaphylaxis Network came out with the criteria that you were talking about. And I think it's what most, if not all, ED physicians teach on shift. And that's that three category criteria where there is an exposure to an unknown antigen, a likely antigen, or a known antigen. And so just to briefly review those principles, uh, it was felt that anaphylaxis was highly likely if in the first criteria there was an unknown exposure with an acute onset of an illness and the development of skin or mucosal changes and at least either respiratory compromise or reduced blood pressure. In the second criteria, after uh, what they thought was a likely antigen, there was involvement of the two or more organ system involvement. So just like you mentioned, the skin and mucosal tissue, respiratory compromise, cardiovascular changes, or persistent gastrointestinal symptoms. And then lastly, the third criteria, which is the exposure to a known allergen resulting in a reduction in BP. Yet, even with these criteria being prospectively validated and having that sensitivity that you're mentioning of 95%, um, it was pretty clear that we actually don't use it, or at least we're not applying it as effectively as maybe we should. Um, a study in 2013 in the U.S. by Dr. Russell et al. and a more recent 2020 study at CHEO by our own Dr. Prendergast and team indicated that both in adult and pediatric emerges were still underdiagnosing anaphylaxis, sometimes upwards of 50% of the time. And the major criticism of why this may have been happening was that the definitions were too restrictive for anaphylactic reactions can present with isolated respiratory or cardiovascular symptoms, sometimes without the typical skin findings. And when it came to GI symptoms, a lot of people were asking, what does persistent GI symptoms even mean? So if a child comes in and they puke once, is that meeting the organ system criteria? Okay, well, I am no longer as embarrassed about my previous ineptitude. That's really confusing. So who was it that tried to give us some more guidance on this last year? Yeah, so the World Allergy Organization came out with this new definition in an attempt to simplify this by combining criteria one and two and then tweaking criteria three. So if a patient comes in with an acute onset of illness with skin findings and at least one organ system, you can consider this to be anaphylaxis. And then criteria two is simply if there is a likely or known allergen then they just need respiratory and or cardiovascular involvement. And these can both occur in the absence of skin fit features. Some of this stuff is just easier understood if you see the picture of it. And we're going to include a link to Graham's Grand Round Summary in the show notes for this episode. You should go check it out. Now, I think we all agree that the whole point of these criteria is to maximize our sensitivity so we don't miss anaphylaxis and that we administer epinephrine in a timely fashion because it's a life-saving medication. But Derek, from your perspective as someone who spent a lot of time in allergy clinics, what are some pitfalls in how eMERGE or community docs apply the criteria of anaphylaxis when they're sending a referral to you in clinic? 
it's very subjective and it's and it's it's very difficult. And I know that when they were developing these guidelines, it was difficult to get a consensus from everyone because um, it's hard to do. And I think that you know the most important thing from a from an allergist getting a referral would be to try to provide as much objective evidence of what happened as possible. Did you hear wheezing when you examined them? Was there hives? Did they have vomiting or diarrhea? You know, like things that we can we can reliably say, yeah, that did happen. That is very, very helpful because we're not there when it's happening. Okay, sounds like maybe we can help you out. Okay, on a similar note, now this is might sound totally crazy from an emergency department perspective. Some of our listeners may know that there is a mediator called tryptase in anaphylaxis that causes activation of the complement system and mast cell degranulation. Obviously, this test takes a long time to come back. Many centers won't even have it. But is there any role to ever drawing a tryptase level during an anaphylaxis attack in the emergency department? Yeah, yeah, I would absolutely recommend for the vast majority of, of cases of anaphylaxis that you're seeing to actually get the level. From an acute setting, it's not necessarily shouldn't be changing your management. You shouldn't be waiting for that level to decide whether or not you're going to give epinephrine or not. But post hoc, when we're kind of playing Monday morning quarterback and trying to analyze what exactly happened, and if someone has some type of an underlying disease that predisposes them to having anaphylaxis, such as mastocytosis, or if they have you know hereditary alpha tryptosemia, uh, it's important to have uh, a level during an attack and then a level at baseline. So. The level actually peaks within an hour and then it starts to go down from there. It's usually back to normal by, you know, four to six hours. So if someone's coming to see you 12 hours after anaphylaxis, you know, maybe it's not necessarily. But if they still are having symptoms, it would be helpful to see if, it, if you know, they still do have an elevated level for what it's worth. Okay, so this is new information to me. I have never considered really sending one of these before. What are the test characteristics like? Is it going to muddy the waters or does it actually help in some meaningful way? I don't think the tryptase level should ever get in the way of anaphylaxis. And, you know, it should never be a decision maker for you because there's a lot of cases of anaphylaxis that don't have an elevated tryptase. And there's a lot of cases of people that are not having anaphylaxis that can have an elevated tryptase. You know, there's something new that's come out that's called a hereditary alpha tryptosemia, which affects about 5% of the population that can have a baseline elevated tryptase level. And, you know, that's a newer diagnosis that can falsely think that you're having anaphylaxis all the time. However, in some of these disease states, the tryptase level during an attack is important. Um, for instance, mast cell activation syndrome requires an elevated tryptase, you know, greater than 20% above the baseline plus two nanograms. You know, those tryptase levels, despite them not being especially sensitive or specific, are helpful for a lot of diagnoses that we're having to make um, in retrospect. Yeah, I can imagine our listeners are probably saying, well, you know, what do these guys do 99% of the time because these levels are not getting sent? Are there specific cases where we should or shouldn't be considering sending this level? Yeah, so what you usually do is you try and gather as much evidence as you can, both from the emergency report and from the patient, because often they're quite scared. You know, anaphylaxis is, is, is terrifying to patients. And even things that are not anaphylaxis but present like it are, are terrifying as well. Everyone's rushing around them. They're injecting something into their thigh. You know, like it's a, it's a traumatic event. And, and, you know, there is like, you know, PTSD from these types of events. So we're trying to gather as much objective evidence as possible. These are for kind of a more specific subset of patients with anaphylaxis where there's not a clear trigger. If you're dealing with someone that has a peanut allergy and they have eaten peanuts accidentally, you don't need a tryptase level in that case. It's not something that's going to be very helpful for us. It's not something that's going to change our management. It's more for the cases where there's uncertainty around the diagnosis and in the trigger for, for the anaphylaxis.
Okay, let's move on to the big gun we have for anaphylaxis, epinephrine. Graham, what can you tell us about the dosing or site of administration of epinephrine for anaphylaxis? From a perspective of dosing, uh, the correct dose for epinephrine for the treatment of anaphylaxis is 0.01 milligrams per kilogram. And you can do that up to a max of 0.5 milligrams. How you decide as to when you make that change to the maximum doses is really going to vary on site. Um, UpToDate, for example, uses the greater than 50 kilograms as their uh, number where they determine where they decide to change from the uh, lower doses to the 0.5. Where here at Ottawa, we actually use 40 kilograms. So I think referring to your institution's protocol is going to be very helpful at that. Um, but when it comes to the outpatient management and deciding at the dosage, it's, it's all weight-based. So anyone below the weight of 25 kilograms is going to be getting the 0.15 milligram auto-injector or the EpiPen Junior. And then anyone above that weight of 25 kilograms is then going to be receiving the 0.3 milligrams auto-injector or just the regular EpiPen. The most important thing to remember when we're in the hospital though is that we are capable of providing weight-based dosing and looking at your patient and utilizing the appropriate dose to ensure they're getting the, the most benefit from epinephrine is going to be key. So I do encourage using the 0.01 milligram per kilogram um, as a starting point uh, to determine your dose. Okay, so maybe 0.3 is out unless you're actually dealing with someone that's 30 kilos. Derek, where do, where do these numbers come from? Is this based on any sort of uh, reasonable level of evidence? There's no established randomized control trial on dosing. Uh, even the 0.1 milligrams per kilogram is you know, opinion-based and, and you know, based largely on data on normal adults, not adults having anaphylaxis and they're measuring levels of, of epinephrine in the blood. A lot of the work was actually led by uh, Dr. Estelle Simons out of Manitoba. So she's from Canada. She was the president of the Quad AI and you know, really prolific in the, in the field of allergy. She's the one that, you know, did the epinephrine levels uh, in the vastus lateralis, so lateral thigh versus deltoid, showed that the, the levels uh, in the blood are, are different. She also did the sub-Q versus IM dosing uh, to try and, you know, to show that there's a difference between the absorption if you give it IM versus sub-Q, which, you know, which we're all doing nowadays. And then there's just one last thing I wanted to, to mention about, you know, when you're, when you're sending patients home, there is three options for epinephrine auto-injectors, right? So there's Emeraid, there's Allerject, and there's EpiPen. And I think that most people are, are prescribing a lot of EpiPen. And that's and that's fine. It's totally functional. People are comfortable with it. But Emeraid is, is the one that offers the kind of 0.5 microgram auto-injector. So if you're, if you're giving it to them in hospital because you think that you know, their body habitus would support that dose, then you could do so uh, with the with the emirate as well. But, you know, again, the, the dose that you need for treating anaphylaxis is, is fairly subjective. There's no real strong evidence to support one dose versus another. Wow, I did not know about that Canadian connection, but you just alluded to something that I want to expand on because I've seen some very smart, experienced emergent nurses give the dose of epinephrine in the deltoid. And I guess the thought is, you know, I am as I am, what difference does it make? Do you think the the site of administration actually matters? This is this is Estelle Simons in, in, in out of Manitoba, and she did you know plasma concentrations of epinephrine at peak in healthy volunteers. You know, I think that there was you know not many you know like twenty six patients or something like this, and they measured plasma concentrations of epinephrine and compared the levels with 
deltoid versus lateral thigh, and they showed that the levels are higher if you inject into the lateral thigh. And this is largely because it's a greater vasculature. Um, the, there's thought that maybe the, the, there's a difference between the subcutaneous fat versus uh, the muscle um, as well. And, you know, Dr. Uh, Dr. Kim did some work where they're ultrasounding patients to, to kind of show the, the, the distance between skin and the, the, the muscle to show, you know, would the needle actually get to where it needs to go to be maximally absorbed. So, so that's where that comes from. So what you're saying is there's just like one more reason not to skip leg day. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I was going to say the same joke as you. You beat me to it. <laughs> just the quiet, the quiet sad laughter from Graham. It's just like, I kind of wish you hadn't done that. I should also probably say, for total you know, transparency and clarification, we're naming a lot of name brand, like proprietary names for epinephrine auto-injectors today. None of us have taken any money from any of these companies. So there's no financial conflicts of interest here. I think this would be a good time too, Rajiv, when you guys are talking about this. We talked a little bit about the thigh and how it has the thinner tissue and less fat and you have a greater chance of injecting intramuscularly, but with the deltoid, there's also that higher risk of doing an interosseous injection when you're giving the epinephrine, um, particularly in children and in the elderly, which is why also the thigh was chosen as well. And when we talk about these adverse outcomes, uh, the, the ventricular arrhythmias, the MIs, these are typically in that patient population when they receive those IV boluses, just like was mentioned. Uh, and that's another reason why the thigh is such a superior site. I think if you look at the literature, the vast majority of the errors are when the epinephrine is given IV instead of IM. That's like all the adverse outcomes that you see from epinephrine uh, treatment of anaphylaxis. Okay, so let's get into some of the nitty-gritty about the adjunct medications for anaphylaxis. Now, Graham, I know you have some opinions about this. So yeah, like I think, um, well, I guess I also want to put, whether you have to put this at the beginning of the podcast or at the end, but like uh, kind of a disclaimer that you're going to insert, maybe with a fancy sound, I don't know. But uh, I would say that what we're about to discuss are, are really my own opinions. They don't represent TOH or amazing EM department, but... Steroids and antihistamines are very controversial. It's a, it, I would say it's one of the perfect examples of what we talk about when we think about dogma and medicine and how sometimes we continue to do things without really asking why. And so when we talk about steroids, uh, steroids really have two hypothetical benefits. Uh, the first is to reduce the severity of the acute reaction, and the second is to mitigate and or prevent that mythical unicorn that you mentioned, which we know as the biphasic reaction. Uh, in terms of the acute phase, the evidence for steroids really came from kids with asthma and croup and showed that steroids help with relapse prevention and decrease admission rates. Yeah, well, that kind of makes sense. It's like an anti-inflammatory, right? But when you think about the pharmacodynamic activity of steroids and the studies uh, that show that the maximum serum concentration of steroids really occurs between one and two hours, it's really unlikely that steroids is going to help prevent death from anaphylaxis, which we brought this up recently, but thankfully in my brief four years of residency, I've never seen or heard of any 
deaths or major complications from anaphylaxis. Uh, but when it does happen, the, story, the studies that do look at this basically report that it happens in the first five to 30 minutes of bugs, drugs, and food reactions. So that only emphasizes the futility of administering corticosteroids to treat that acute phase. But this does happen. Uh, it happens in our eMERGE, it happens in many sites. Uh, a multi-center 2012 study by uh, our own Dr. Al Karishi and Dr. Ellis showed that in a cohort of more than 2,000 anaphylaxis patients, less than 25% actually received epinephrine compared to nearly 50% who received corticosteroids, which is scary because despite epinephrine being the single best therapy for anaphylaxis and being universally recommended as a first-line therapy, it continues to be underutilized, often in exchange for these adjuncts like steroids. Okay, well, I buy that. Maybe steroids aren't useful in the acute phase, but does that mean that there's no benefit to them at all? And so the second uh, and likely the main hypothetical reason most uh, first-line workers healthcare professional eMERGE docs will say why they're using steroids is their potential role in preventing or decreasing the severity of biphasic reactions. Many people use different uh, definitions, but the one that I use is uh, a biphasic reaction is recurrent anaphylaxis after complete resolution of symptoms without re-exposure to the trigger within 72 hours after the initial anaphylactic event. Because of this, rates of biphasic reactions is reported uh, at different amounts, sometimes ranging from less than 1% to 20, and that's because of the varying definitions. But based on what I just said, uh, the most recent epidemiological studies report the rates around 4 to 5%, with most biphasic reactions being clinically similar to the original presentation. Uh, with another study really showing that only 20% required more aggressive therapy than the initial reaction. Okay, so it's not common, but it's not not common. Where did the idea of giving steroids in the ED come from for resuscitation of anaphylaxis? Yeah, so steroids in the ED originally gained popularity in 2007 after a single-centered prospective study of 103 anaphylaxis patients showed fewer biphasic reaction in those who received corticosteroids. But most of the literature since, including a Cochrane review, several systematic reviews and meta-analysis have not shown any preventative association with corticosteroid use, with one study even going as far to say that they would not advocate for the routine use in anaphylaxis. Hey, Graham, just yeah. a quick question for you. In your research, had you ever found an example of a, of a mortality or a severe biphasic no. reaction? Like, I don't, I, I, I don't think, like, you know, the literature that I, or, like, the, the guidelines and whatnot, we always say that, you know, true biphasic, according to what you say, like, complete resolution of symptoms, are, like, exceedingly rare, and no mortality um, has ever been demonstrated of a, for a biphasic No, and I, I haven't found anything. Now, obviously, um, despite me hoping my, my search is exhaustive, there's always a chance that I've missed something, but I've never come across any literature on uh, a biphasic reaction that's led to mortality, and, and maybe the listeners or someone will post something where that is the case. I mean, we can all learn from it, but no, I haven't. Yeah, th this is from the practice parameters that I'm reading. So there's a 2020 Quad AI practice parameters. That's where I'm getting most of my information from. And they're 
And that's where they, they have the, the, the distinct line they have is biphasic anaphylactic reactions, especially clinically important ones, occur rarely and no yeah. mortality. Was yeah, so I, I, I agree. I, haven't, uh, I, I would say I haven't found anything that, that challenges that. Okay, so I'm getting mixed signals here. Or maybe I'm not getting mixed signals. Maybe it just sounds like I am. You know, it sounds like there's a compelling case that steroids in the acute phase don't reduce the severity of anaphylaxis. And rebound reactions are relatively rare. And severe or fatal rebound anaphylaxis reactions are essentially non-existent. And steroids may not even prevent them in the first place. Is there any role for steroids in anaphylaxis whatsoever? Because it sounds like what from you're saying there might not be. Am I saying that right? So I think the most important thing when we talk about looking at or talking about steroids in the, in the context of anaphylaxis, when I say things like steroids don't prevent biphasic reaction, hopefully the listeners don't extrapolate that as steroids have no role in anaphylaxis because that, that is not true. There are definitely situations where steroids may benefit a patient. Uh, in particular, for example, one in a patient with refractory anaphylaxis who shows persistent signs of respiratory concerns or cardiovascular shock, uh, and two in a patient with asthma presenting concurrently with anaphylaxis. In these situations, steroids does show a benefit. But I think it's important as a merge doc so we, we take it away from the let's just throw IV methylprednisolone at them um, and actually consider, is there a steroid that best benefits this patient if we are gonna give it? Um, for example, uh, methylprednisolone uh, actually is most often implicated in steroid-induced anaphylaxis, urticaria, and angioedema. So I would say that we could go a step further and really make it slick and say, okay, we should be thinking about dexamethasone or hydrocortisone and guide our choice based on the patient's presentation. So if they're presenting with persistent signs of upper or lower airway obstruction, then using dexamethasone is the more suitable steroid. It has high anti-inflammatory actions, negligible mineral corticoid effects, and a longer duration of action. Alternatively, if you look at patients who continue to have hypotension or shock despite those repeated epinephrine and IV fluid boluses, then getting those mineral corticoid effects from hydrocortisone is likely more appropriate. So I don't think we could ever say that steroids don't have uh, a role. And I, I definitely agree that I think it's important to choose our words carefully, but these are unique and rare situations. Uh, the single most important thing that has been shown to significantly reduce the severity of anaphylactic reactions and minimize bounce backs from biphasic reactions is not steroids. It's epinephrine. Yeah, I might file that under dogma too, but that may be that might be good dogma. While we're on the topic of biphasic reactions, what are some clinical features that may confer a higher risk of a patient experiencing a biphasic reaction? So the Canadian Society of Allergy and Clinical Immunology in the 2020 paper that just came out uh, did look at 30 studies around biphasic reactions to look for those features that may help us identify those that are at higher risk for biphasic reactions. And it really came down to uh, two, the first being those who required 
multiple epinephrine doses and the second being those with more severe anaphylactic reactions. Uh, severe being def defined as end organ dysfunction, cardiac signs like hypotension, cardiac arrest, or any respiratory symptoms like cyanosis, respiratory failure. Uh, but all that to be said, there's, there's many features you have to think about when you're treating or trying to predict these uh, cases. Uh, inherent to all risk stratification, you have to think about are there features that put this patient uh, at a high risk of mortality? But as we've mentioned, mortality from biphasic reactions is actually very, very rare. And so in those who did have those high risk features, so specifically the multiple epinephrine doses, the number needed to observe to detect one biphasic reaction uh, before discharge was 13. And then those with severe anaphylactic symptoms the number needed to observe was, was 41. Oh, okay, yeah. Those are good numbers to have somewhere in the back of the old noggin. Um, Derek, do you, like, do you believe in, uh, you know, there was just recently in, in CGEM, which is the Canadian Journal of Emergency Medicine, they published a, uh, a systematic review of factors influencing observation time and what was associated with biphasic reactions. The list was even slightly longer than the, the factors that were Graham just mentioned. Like they actually also include a, quote, history of anaphylaxis and uh, unknown trigger. Uh, is this just voodoo or is there some, is there an actual like pathophysiological basis for this or, and does it even matter at all? I, I don't think it really matters to be honest. Like, you know, I think Graham was mentioning low risks of, of severe um, biphasic reactions and there's actually never been a documented mortality from a biphasic reaction. So, you know, as long as you're ensuring that the patient has epinephrine and they know how to use it when they're going home, I, I don't think that the extended observation is really needed in, 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 unless that. Like you said, this is not for patients that haven't resolved, right? We're talking about a very specific subset of the population that you've treated their anaphylaxis, they've come to their complete baseline. That's that's the point where the, the clock starts, right? That's when you're saying no more further observation. If they're still hypotensive or they're still wheezy, then certainly don't discharge them. But um, some of these other factors that they mentioned, you know, if you look at like the grade evidence for the recommendation, it's very low. So, you know, um, when... That's the kind of problem with research in areas where there's extremely rare outcomes. It's hard to do a study to kind of prove it because, you know, anaphylaxis is rare. Um, you'll see it often, but it's, it's a rare entity. Biphasic reactions are even rarer, and severe biphasic reactions are the rarest. And mortality has never been documented. So, like, how do you prove a benefit of one thing versus another and, and all the confounding factors? It's really hard to do research on these topics. Um, yeah, it's wor worth mentioning that both the suggestion and the Canadian guideline that um, severe or greater than one dose have biphasic reactions and even the extended observation, they're, they're very upfront saying it's very low certainty evidence for both of those recommendations. Yeah. And, and I mean, you also would like question the diagnosis, right? Like, you know, this is all based on chart review and, and I could go in there and, you know, being dermatographic and having a panic attack could have anaphylaxis diagnosed and then go home and do the same thing and have it again, right? Like, you know, I'm saying that people are are inventing symptoms, but like, you know, anaphylaxis is, is often fairly subjective as far as the diagnosis. So like whether or not these are true biphasic reactions or not is, is to be questioned as well. That's it for part one on anaphylaxis with doctors Graham Wilson and Derek Lanou. Thanks so much for being on the show, guys. I already learned a ton, and that's just part one. You got to stick around for part two. That's coming up next.
If you want to check out more great FOMED content from the group here in Ottawa, please go to the emottawablog.com. Thanks to Yusang for providing our music. That's him you heard on the intro, this outro right now, and all those little bits in between. And if you've got something you want to hear about on the show, or if you've got a case or a topic you want to talk about, please get in touch. You can always follow and message me on Twitter. That's at Rajiv Thava, R-A-J-I-V-T-H-A-V-A. Catch you again on the next episode.